Welcome to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, Dr. Alec Levinson. Yes, I am a massive Star Trek fan. Like, I've seen every episode of every series at least three times, <laughs> except, for the, except for the new ones that came out in the past year or so. Okay. Because, uh, you know, just like time commitment, et cetera. Except, but, except, no, no, except those are, that's a damn good new series. Uh, the Strange New Worlds, I, I'm really, really. Oh, no, not, in. sorry, not that one. I met the one with, um, with Burnham. Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sorry. I had nothing to contribute to the Star Trek. I, I've never seen, I, I think, a single episode. And I haven't seen Will what? either. So I, what? I, I don't know who these episode. people are. I apologize. But um, do you do, a, uh, do you attend like Trek conventions, Alec? No, no, not not that. Never, not a real Trekkie that way. <laughs> sorry. I've been to several. I've just never dressed up. That's just not my bag. There you go. He doesn't have to dress up. He dresses like a Star Trek person every day. It's a normal outfit. No. <laughs> but, um, I don't see the insignia well, on your shirt. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm, I'm going to introduce you, Alec, if you'll let me. Um, so we're talking to Al- Dr. Alec Levinson. He is an economist and senior research scientist at the Center for Effective Organizations, which is a part of the Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California. Um, his action research and consulting work with companies optimize job and organization performance. And he's got a background, a really interesting background, which we'll get into on the podcast, where he, he studied a double major of economics in the Chinese language from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and then received his PhD and master's in economics from Princeton University, specializing in labor economics and development economics. So thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Dr. Alec Levinson. And uh, and welcome, and <laughs> we can keep yes. talking about Star Trek if you want, but uh, <laughs> I just I, it'll be a two person conversation. Well, thank you, thank you for having me. But also, um, if you're going to insist on calling me doctor, I'm going to tell you that I have to pre- prescribe medication for you, which would be a bad idea. So just call me Alec. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, we'd have to call all three of us doctors, I guess. We just have like a way. round circle of doctors, just yeah. doctor. doctor, exactly, doctor. Well, Alec. I think it would be really interesting just to kind of start us out here, uh, because first of all, I don't think of any of our guests have had the formal training that you have had in economics, but also I think it's a pretty uncommon background in this space of people analytics. Would you mind telling us a little bit about maybe your professional journey of going from having a PhD in economics and working entirely now in org behavior? Um, well, so my kind of my my first kind of off the cuff response is, you know, I, I meet these people, um, particularly people who have, you know, they might be young people themselves, meaning in their 20s, or, you know, parents of young people. And they'll say to me, you know, so what do you do? And I tell them, and they say, do you like, do you like what you do? I say, I love it. And then they'll say, oh, how did you get there? And I have to tell them, you cannot learn anything from my journey. <laughs> this is, this is, it, it's not like I knew when I was a young lad that I wanted to end up here. And it's been, let me it this way, we don't have enough time to get into the twists and turns of my, you know, professional development, but I'll just give you kind of the highlights. Um, so I kind of, I, I, I did economics because I thought it'd be useful. That was the first mistake, um, you know, and I thought that it would really help to teach me about kind of knowledge that, that people would want to then learn from. Um, turns out that, you know, people hire economists to basically validate their priors, meaning that, you know, 
liberal people hire liberal economists and conservative people hire conservative economists. They don't really want to learn from that. Um, but I did have the, the privilege of learning from some really good people about how to essentially do analysis the right way. And particularly around kind of micro microeconomic analysis, this is around kind of labor economics issues, development economics issues. So I had this really, really strong methodology and really strong founding in kind of how you can measure things and measure them well. The other thing that economics is really good about, uh, well, good as it is, we'll, we'll see if you agree with good. Economics <laughs> excels at telling big stories with little bits of data. If they're great stories from a logical perspective, but they oftentimes are divorced from reality, which is why economics gets so much scorn because you know we look at little bits of data, tell these big stories, and then it doesn't really you know jive with reality. That's why economists have a have a hard time oftentimes prescribing what'll work you know in the real world. Um, Isn't that kind of why you can have liberal economists and conservative economists because you, when you have small data sets that you're making big extrapolations from. You can tell vastly different stories in terms of how you torture the data. So that's certainly the case for macroeconomics. So if we're talking mm-hmm. about trying to explain why you have inflation and unemployment the way they are, they are, the problem is there's like two datas, two data points you're trying to explain it about like 17 or 1700 different you know possible hypotheses. So that's why it's really more a logic argument about like you know mm-hmm. what's the role of government, all that kind of stuff. We are not going down that rabbit hole. Yeah, um, sure. But I. What I'd say is that for microeconomics, which again is kind of labor and development topics, mm-hmm. um, the so before someone puts on their hat, kind of interpreting something from a public policy perspective or like what government might do, um, the the really good microeconomists actually would not disagree at all on what the data say. The question is about the interpretation, right? So yeah. you can look at things like you know, are people unemployed? You know, what do careers look like? Things like that, and the really good you know, methodologies will tease out what are the potential driving factors, but then the conversation becomes, well, should government do something about it or not? That's where the methodology is. But the reason- Scott and I both have backgrounds in IO psychology and and, and Scott, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but like, as far as I'm concerned, I've never heard of like the liberal IO psychologist community and the conservative IO psychologist community. (laughs) So it's kind of, foreign to me to hear that there's like, I don't know, different versions of the truth, let's say, in terms of science. Yeah, well, again, this is, that's because that's the political side of economics, but, you know, mm-hmm. let, let's not go any farther down that rabbit hole. Sure, sure, <laughs> but, sure. But what I would say is that, again, even if you took people who voted, you know, liberally or conservatively as economists, when it comes to kind of looking at the data around what happens to jobs, what happens to people, there isn't a lot of disagreement about about the analysis. The question is the interpretation. Okay. So so how is this relevant? Okay, so this brings me into then you know kind of working organizations. Um, the reason why I came over to work on organization behavior was because two reasons. One is I got I got tired of you know not being able to tell compelling stories with little bits of data, and it turns out that there's a lot more fascinating and important data to be had looking kind of within organizations because that's where all the action is, and I kind of thought I was leaving behind me, telling big stories with little bits of data. And then this revolution <laughs> happened in business, which was called first HR analytics, then talent analytics, yeah. you know, people analytics. And I kind of feel like I'm being chased by the ghosts of economics past into the kind of present <laughs> of analytics and organization. You're just so, like a Pac-Man there, just being chased by all these ghosts. Um, 
I, I really feel like economists have a better marketing arm than IOs. And there's a lot of things that uh, economists can teach IOs. Well, what, or what are some of the elements from your training or background that uh, IO psychologists or other people analytics folks can uh, use? Well, so let me start with how I've learned from you all. Um, because okay. I, I literally came over and I did almost like a second PhD on the job. I mean, I had the privilege in joining the Center for Effective Organizations, and the people I learned from here are some of the you know best in the world at things like you know employee involvement, involvement, not engagement. <laughs> I mean, also you know talking about engagement, but things like you know high performance work practices, how you do team design, how you do organization design. You know that that stuff is is mm-hmm. kind of critical for understanding what's important about what goes on in organization. Now. The people who work in organization behavior, many of them come from IO psychology backgrounds, but it's not the only discipline. And mm-hmm. what's been interesting for me is I spent the first few years just kind of totally in awe and kind of like like just kind of sitting at the feet of, you know, the IO psychologists and the org behavior people going, just, you know, teach me more and more. Um, <laughs> but I've kind of learned over time that there are those who kind of think more broadly and systematically and those who stay a little, you know, a bit more narrow. Um, and this is true in all the different disciplines. So um, my personal journey has been, you know, so I came in with the kind of the economics, the kind of rigorous system thinking, being able to tell big stories about a system with a little bit of data. Um, and by the way, that that's actually a very important skill because what you need to do is you need to be able to create compelling arguments for why things happen the way they do that aren't just BS. Um, the tricky thing here, and, and we could spend all of our time on the podcast, but we won't. Um, I've been spending a huge amount of my time talking about the kind of where it is that we're supposed to play in terms of qualitative data versus quantitative data. And the biggest bias that, that people have in general, they have it in psychology, certainly in economics, but also in the whole world of analytics, is about going to what the data, just the data you have in front of you. Um, the book that I wrote in 2015 called Strategic Analytics, which really should have been called, there we go, <laughs> thank you, Cole, um, really should have been called Org Diagnostics, but no one would have read it or bought it if I called <laughs> it that. Um, but it really is, it's like 220 pages of telling people, stop working with the data in front of you, take a step back, you know, figure out what the problem is you're going to look at, realize that the data in front of you can maybe answer 25% of what you need to know. And so you got to go out there and collect the information that you need. Um, what I, and, I, and this is what I learned totally from the psychologists and the org behavior people. But what I really learned from the people who kind of think about the org, org system is there's, a, there's certainly a lot we can do and have to do to collect, you know, more rigorous data to be able to measure the things that we want. That's like, that kind of goes without saying. I think but, that's a really great transition, Alec, because when I think about your book from 2015, Strategic Analytics, and you talked about, you know, extrapolating from you know, big things from small data sets, and then what is the value of systems thinking in terms of doing analytics? I really love the model that you had about working your way backwards from competitive advantage analytics to enterprise analytics to human capital analytics. And I just wanted to thank you in that regard because I attended one of your <laughs> trainings probably 10 years ago, and you introduced this framework, and I've used it many, many times since then. But can you talk about that, like how systems thinking plays a role? when looking at analytics from that type of model? Absolutely. No, and in fact, that's, I was about to go there. And I, 
I do, I do remember, Cole, you were actually in one of my early, I think it was called the Target Analytics Workshop. So thank you for being a guinea pig. And obviously, you know, I must not have damaged you that much because you're still still here and, you know, functioning well. Cole, um, Cole is the paper Atlantic hipster, by the way. Oh, my gosh. That, that's his, that, that's, that's his not nickname. going away, is it? Uh, <laughs> anyway, keep going, Alec. Don't listen to Scott. So, so something which is kind of an undertone in that book, but I don't really call it, I mean, I call it a little bit, but not a huge amount is this question about kind of qualitative and quantitative, you know, and saying that, you know, like essentially not everything, so what is, you know, what's the phrase that we say, you know, that's attributed to Einstein, right? Not everything that can be measured should be in, you know, lots of things that need to be measured, <laughs> yes. um, like that. Um, it's really, that really applies in organization, but there is a, I will give you a kind of a statistical, um, a, you know, kind of a statistical response here. And the statistical response is that, um, for those of you who are statistically you know, trained or inclined, is that when we're trying to explain an organizational outcome, there's only the, the N is one, the sample size is one. And we have lots of different you know, possible driving factors. So there is no statistical model you can run to actually say what happens you know, at the organizational level. And this is something Max Blumberg and I have been colleagues and, you know, talking about things for years, we talk a lot about this, about kind of, you know, kind of the different kinds of analysis you have to do at different levels. Um, and, you know, so, so part of it is, even if you're trained with the best whiz bang statistics that are out there, there ain't no statistics you can do to explain the organizational outcome, period, <laughs> right? So, so that's where you actually have to be bringing in, you know, kind of logic models, study analysis. It's not just whatever goes. I mean, this isn't saying, well, whatever story you want to tell, you know, is the one that's going to, you know, whoever can argue the most. It's no, it's that there are, you actually have to construct really compelling stories about why things happen the way they do. And you actually have to do deep analysis. So this is things like looking like, you know, where, and, and a, a big point of the book, Cole, thank you for, for kind of calling it out, is when I talk about doing kind of like competitive advantage analytics versus like, you know, think about it as you got kind of, there's the business model level. Like what's actually driving our success as a business model? Then you can kind of you can drill down a level from there, and right? you can say, well, we got business processes. We've got teams that are doing the business processes, like teams of teams. And then within each team, there's stuff that's going on. Then you can get down to individual role. So mm -hmm. a lot of what we do in people analytics often starts with again where the data is. So we've got lots of customer service representatives, or R and D scientists, you know, or salespeople, and we look for differences among them. And those analyses are important. I mean, I, I, a lot. Okay, go ahead. I know, I, I think I think you're totally right. Uh, we over-index on, say, the quantitative data, and they can only take us so far. And by the time you actually collect that information it just, and analyze it, it's already old at that point. Whereas, you know, you go and find some quality of information, they're going to give you a wider variety of information than you could possibly collect. And the whole goal of any analysis isn't to, oh, collect data or report it, et cetera. It's uncertainty reduction. You're trying to answer a certain question or at least do the best job you freaking can at that with the information that you have. Now, yeah. I think your model goes a long way towards boarding yeah. that. Well, one of the things I learned from you, Alec, in paying kind of heed to qualitative analysis, and I've probably quoted you on this over 100 times since I learned it from you, was you were talking about doing like before any kind of research project, doing structured interviews with stakeholders to try to figure out kind of what's the, the parameters of the problem, let's say. And, uh, and I think somebody asked you the question like, well, how many of these interviews do you do? And you said, 
do them until you quit hearing something new. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that's so beautiful and simple. And I was like, I've quoted you on that so many times. So I wanted to give you credit for that. Well, thank you. I can give you, so I'll give a, I can, I'll give you a numerical answer too, though. Um, So you usually have to do about 30 and usually a lot, not a lot more than 30. Now there is a, there is a caveat here though. If you're internal, so if you're working in an organization, you've been there for a while and you kind of know, you know where the bodies are buried. You kind of know, you know, kind of who are the people who are in the know about things. You probably have to do a much smaller number than I have to do as an outsider. As an outsider, right. I need to talk Makes to a sense. lot more people, right? Like, I mean, think about like, let's bring in a different frame of reference. So think about doing like an organizational network. If you did an organizational network analysis and you found those kind of people hidden in the org chart, that are the ones like where a lot of things go through. If you got 15 to 20 of them, you probably have a lot of the intelligence you need to say, okay, this is how things are really operating here. That's kind of number one. Um, <laughs> the that's that's kind of one way to think about it. The other is that the way that I the way that I talk about it is we're painting a tapestry. And when it comes to explaining like why it is that people in R and D are not working with people in sales, so let's say let's say the problem we have is innovation. And in innovation. Frequently, the problem is the people who are working at kind of that early stage, the true kind of blue sky thinking stuff, oftentimes are not directly connected to the commercial side. Now, this isn't true in all businesses. Consumer products, kind of quick cycle businesses like that, they're usually pretty tied in. But like long business cycle, and think about like pharmaceuticals, you know, anything that requires a really long development, oftentimes even in software development, right? It's like you've got people who are these technical experts who are doing this kind of innovation but they're not necessarily have their finger on the pulse of what, of what the customer wants. And you'll get these arguments because, you know, because, the pe- because a true innovator will say, well, a customer doesn't, they can't really conceive of something that's brand new and totally different until yeah. they experience it, right? But at the same time, if the engineers or the scientists go and do this, you know, really cool research and build something that seems really awesome before testing it with the customer, you usually end up with something that is not well designed. and so. You know, so, so for example, when we say, well, why don't we have such good innovation? I don't need, and I don't want to do a survey of hundreds or thousands of people in the organization because most people don't have good line of sight into no. why those things aren't happening. But there's going to be key people who are working in R&D or working in sales or in like, you know, kind of integrated roles across who will, who will call BS and who will say, this is why these groups aren't, you know, aren't getting along. This is why we're not getting better collaboration. And if we did that, then we would actually get to better innovation. That's the kind of interview that when you're doing these interviews, you know, when you come across someone who gives you that kind of compelling you know, story, it makes perfect sense. And it makes perfect sense because they can tell you about the history and the culture and like, well, the formal rewards are like this, but here's what people, has, here's what people really act. You know, here's where they're passive aggressive. Here's, you know, here's where they kind of, <laughs> they, all, they all say, you know, they all smile nicely in the meeting and they go back and stab each other in the back afterwards. Like, those are the gems. And when you come across those, one interview like that outweighs what you might hear from 50 other people. Oh, ab- absolutely. And you, you're hitting on uh, something very close to home here. Like I, I am a co-author on a recent article that was published around innovation and the needs at each uh, innovation cycle. Cole and I are going to cover it next week. Everyone can look forward to that. Alec, I, I'd love to get your feedback as well. But you're also like, okay, this is like a tip out there for anyone that wants to do this sort of research but doesn't have the means to conduct entire network analysis, 
is, is this idea called the friendship paradox. And the friendship paradox essentially states that your friends have more friends than you do because you are more likely to nominate somebody that has a bigger friend group than you are. They're more likely to be an extrovert. I mean, like someone's not going to nominate an introvert. So, um, uh, I not, not pick them. Yeah, where are you going with this guy? <laughs> well, my, my, my point is, uh, is Nicholas Christakis. He, he talks about this quite a bit in, in his book, uh, uh, connected. What you can do if you want to find these people is go in and just uh, sample a random group of 30 folks and say, like, nominate somebody that might know. And they're going to point to the biggest node in the network themselves because they're going to know, like, okay, go to Cole, go to Alec, because these guys really know their stuff. And you can circumvent, conduct an entire network analysis by this and get to the central nodes of the network. And therefore, you can have these conversations that Alec was talking about of people that are really tuned into the process. Yeah, well, I mean, another way of getting there is you basically, you, you say, you know, what are our main operational, you know, areas? Like, I mean, take, take your core business processes, the ones that are the most important for producing the products and services that make you the most money or give you the biggest market share, right? So you start with those. Then you say, okay, what are the key steps in the process? And you make sure you talk to at least, you know, like one or two key people from each of those steps and you're going to get there pretty quickly. You know, or, or, you know, if you talk to somebody, they'll say, okay, wait, you know, I can tell you so much, but here's the person you really want to talk. To. It's another version of what you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and this Matt. is one of the things that I wanted to compliment you on, Alec, and, and, and frankly, just CEO, the Center for Effective Organizations in general, and, and Max included in this is you guys take a different frame to answering people analytics problems than almost anyone, where you're starting with a very strong sense of business acumen and how businesses operate, how they make money, and going back to the systems thinking approach. So I'm curious, though, because as we work our way down the ladder from, you know, competitive analytics, uh, competitive advantage analytics to the human capital analytics, one of the things that I think is overused, or or maybe not overused, but appropriately used in, in that layer is employee surveys. And so I know you have another book called Employee Surveys at Work that I wanted to plug here. And one of the things that I remember from this book that really stood out to me, and I've heard you say before out loud too, is that there is actually a disconnect between employee engagement and business performance or individual performance. And and one of the quotes in the book is like, the easiest way to increase someone's engagement is to cut their workload in half, but keep their pay the same. And I was like, that's brilliant, right? <laughs> and so that shows that there there is a disconnect between, you know, traditional employee engagement and, and business performance. I don't know, do you want to talk at all about the role that human capital analytics play or employee surveys uh, in general do? Yeah, and first of all, I need to say, so I didn't write that book. I mean, I did write that book. But remember, I'm the economist. You're a ghostwriter? Yeah, what's no, going on here? No, no, no. no. I'll, I'll, I'll be clear. Well, I should say the content, I, I don't consider the 95% of the content in that book is not mine. I didn't steal it. But what happened is I'm the economist. And again, I come in. I had never done a survey, never done an interview. I learned this all, you know, what, coming to CEO and learning from some brilliant people. Um, and, you know, of course, you know, all them psychologists were thinking about doing surveys. And it was about two years before that book came out. I sat down and wrote like a, just, I, I got really frustrated because I was seeing all this crappy survey practice. 
and I wrote like a quick little like, you know, four survey do's and don'ts. And I sent it off to the editor of HR Magazine. I want to just publish this little article. And I got, the, and they took a while, they came back, they said, well, how'd you like to publish a book? And I said, <laughs> I'm not so sure I'm the right person to do it. They said, well, no, we're happy to have you do it. But I didn't feel, I felt like I was an imposter. So I went to all of my IO psychology friends and I said, okay, here are all these bad survey practices. They said, yep. I said, we all know that. I said, okay, who's written it down? They're like, well, no, no, we learned it all in graduate school and we tell people. It's like, yeah. but who's written it down? So, so the acknowledgement- given that book to so many people for just this reason, Alec. But it's... here's the thing. If, okay, it, have you counted the number of acknowledgements? This is fun. Can, I think I acknowledge at least 50 people. There. <laughs> and those are the main people I learned from. I literally said, this is just me standing in, you know, as an imposter, but no one else is writing it. So I'm just giving everybody else credit. The, the, I take credit for like three or four things in the book. And it's, 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 and thank you. Cause you pulled out like one of the, one of the four of them goals. <laughs> so yeah. What, well, as somebody has to be the community scribe and you just happen to be the scribe that day. Well, and the part of what I also do is this is where my kind of really solid training is kind of microeconomics, which is kind of thinking it's, we talk a lot about counterfactuals. So think about another way, like, can you actually disprove what, what's going on? Or can you find another explanation for what's, what's happening there? And that's exactly what I do with the employee engagement. So the, the thing about employee engagement is that conceptually, conceptually, it is 100% correct that engagement leads to performance. Right? Conceptually, you, I, I cannot, if, if you ask me to take the counter side of that argument, I will lose every single time. You can get it, you know, we'll get a, a, 10 judges up there and I'll lose every time. But the problem is, what do we measure? And so what we measure is we ask people, how do you feel about various things? And so what we're getting is we're getting a general affect measure that kind of exists almost in a timeless, in a, in timeless. I mean, it is at a point in time, but you're not, we're not actually asking people, tell me how you feel, you know, in this immediate time before you make certain key decisions. We're just saying, how do you feel? Yeah. And they're, they're, they're thinking about a lot of different stuff and they're going to certainly back a lot of stuff that's happened to them up until that point. Um, so that's, so part of the problem is just the timing thing. The other thing, and this is a really great point I learned from Ed Lawler, who was, you know, of course, a giant in the field, the founder of the Center for Effective Organizations is he, he talks a lot about there being a virtuous spiral essentially between engagement and performance. So when people are engaged, it be an they, upward they, or a downward spiral, depending <laughs> exactly. on the direction. Exactly, yeah. you got it. Exactly, and that's and that then and that then leads to my statistical critique, which is also in that book. But so, so the so the point is that if you are engaged today, you will perform better tomorrow, and if you perform better tomorrow, and the system is designed well, so you get good feedback on your performance, both both kind of real time, kind of so that there's. There's the, there's the intrinsic feedback you get from doing a good job and liking it. There's also the intrinsic motivation from people saying, you know, that you're doing a good job, okay? Then there's the extrinsic motivation of how do I get rewarded for doing this? And in a well-designed system, these things feed on each other and they can kind of spiral up or they can spiral down, which then leads to the other. So the other critique that I have, which is the one which, you know, I, I do take a little bit of credit for is... You know, what I say to people is, well, if engagement really, you know, causes performance, show me the engagement survey that has ever predicted business performance, you know, going down before it does. And the answer is, we, it doesn't happen that way. Because what happens is something external happens. There's an external shock. You know, 
a new competitor comes in, there's a national recession, a war in Ukraine, whatever it is, that puts pressure on the business. Things then get more difficult in the business. That brings people's affect down. That's what we measure. But but none of the measures we have ever predict. They're they're ever you know predictors ahead of time of how of how performance is going to fall. Now, for those people who are a little more wonky on the call, for those of you who have actually seen the Gallup data and how Gallup markets these things, and yes, I will say this openly, and I even put it in the book. Um, Gallup's claim that their data, you know, that shows that engagement causes performance is not true, okay? I mean, <laughs> st statistically, I mean, and this is published in like Journal of Applied Psychology, so everyone thinks it's true there because it's in JAP. Statistically, they did run models where they had engagement today and performance tomorrow, or an engagement yesterday, performance today. And statistically, they found that if you, if you specify the model that way, you actually find that what if, if we measure engagement yesterday, it's positively correlated with performance tomorrow. But think about Ed's story about the virtuous spiral, because in organizations where things are going well, their performance is going to do well, and also their engagement is going to be higher. And so the problem, and this is where I bring in some of my training as an economist, there's an actual, there's a statistical issue here, which is these are simultaneous equations. And you could just as easily specify the equation the other way around. And you probably get the exact same statistical result. Okay, this is <laughs> and and I was taught this. This these were sins that economists were making back in the 1970s, and I was taught as a as a as a wee, as a wee young lad in graduate school when I was in my early 20s um, that thou shalt never run models like that without having certain you know kind of identifying restrictions which you can't put on the data and you can't do it within you know the kind of data that Gallup did as well. So. So the problem, and that's and that's where I come back to them, the storytelling of yes, we see them kind of trend up over time, but you're actually improperly specify your statistical model to say that you know well just because we put engagement yesterday, therefore you know, and if we show a statistical correlation with performance tomorrow, therefore we're proving causality. It doesn't. It's sort of like auto correlation running here between the two variables. Uh, but you know, th this isn't the only book you've written. You've also written what millennials want from work, or at least co-authored part of this book uh speaking of like external forces uh we, we're going through a pandemic perhaps we're coming out the back end not sure do any of those elements or principles from uh what we learned about millennials apply to how we can bring people back to the office or better mm, accommodate this work group moving forward so i i did support jennifer deal in writing that book um, I, I'm the second author, and as I, I've said publicly, I'm not saying it on the record, so this will be preserved for all time. Um, normally, a co-author does like 50 or, you know, maybe 45% of the work. I probably did 30%, so she really cared about <laughs> that one, and I've been, I've been owing her a big debt ever since. Um, so, but no, it's, um, so first of all, yes, I do want to shout out, um, Jennifer actually was, she was at the Center for Creative Leadership for 23 years. She's now been with, with us here at CEO for the past two to three years. Delighted to have her join us. Um, and we've actually talked a lot about this whole question of, you know, I mean, and she's looked at generational differences for a very long time. Um, the joke that we make about that book, so we, I mean, we will get up and give presentations, we did it, you know, all around the world after writing the book, is like you get about two thirds of the way through a presentation and, you know, and, and, and then an older person will raise their hand and say, wait a minute, you're saying this is what millennials want from work, you know, but now but it's like, but what about me? This sounds like what I want. And so the joke that I would say exactly. is like, yeah, it's like if you hold the book up under blue, like a special blue light, the the real title is Management One Hundred and One. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
it's like it's like if you actually treat your youngest people who are both first of all kind of newer to the workforce but they're also their lowest they're lowest in the hierarchy right they've got the least power if you actually treated them the way you wanted to be treated yourself your organization would run a heck of a lot better go figure go figure just uh, practice those uh, tried and true management practices treat them like they're any other age group like there's a lot of people out there to suggest that millennials are not different than any other group they're just uh play the record backwards and see the secret <laughs> message management 101 exactly well, Alec, you, you're a great conversationalist, and I think you've been giving us a lot of really great information. I do want to make a quick plug. You have an upcoming workshop called Fluid Talent and Technology. So if people are interested in hearing what they've heard today, obviously join you. Um, that's through CEO. That's correct? Yeah. I mean, that's that's one. That's So that's a bit broader around kind of strategic HR. And that's, I mean, that to me is, that's a whole, our whole purpose in doing it. So, you know, so even if you see yourself as being more kind of an analytics inclined person, we're going to have a lot of things that tie into that kind of kind of analytics way of looking at the world. But it's really about kind of what should we be thinking about in terms of people and talent and the HR function so we can be making better decisions. Um, so that one's actually, you know, we've got the date scheduled. It's going to be virtual. It starts November 7th. People can sign up for it. Um, but next year we will be having there's another virtual session called the People Analytics and Change Masterclass that's co-taught with Maura Stevenson um, and um, Paul Taffender. Um, so we'll be doing that again, probably February time. And then there will be, I will say it here for the first time publicly, uh, we're developing a new advanced analytics workshop that will feature Mike Blumberg and Alexa Fink. Um, the three of us each have a little bit of a reputation. Yes, starring Cole and Scott, perhaps, <laughs> Alec? <laughs> We will we will gladly take interlopers, but we'll have to negotiate this off on the side afterwards. Yeah, um, sure, sure. <laughs> but yeah, so we're you know we we see a lot of you know kind of these conversations around how do we kind of take you know the people analytics to the next level. Um, we got some of that in the analytics change masterclass, and we'll do an, you know a large chunk of that as well in the new one that we're designing. So lots. Well, lots I know of I'm getting the cart before the court the uh, cart before the horse here, but uh, I know you also have a new people analytics book coming out. Um, title list at the moment, but it's going to be a big one. You you shared with me some of the co-authors and everything, and I was I was very impressed. So we'll leave that as kind of a just a, a like a little a teaser a trail of breadcrumbs to to the future of people analytics. But except, my, um, except except if people go look for it, the book hasn't been it hasn't we haven't yet written enough for it to be with the publishers, so you won't find it yet. So but exactly some, should be sometime next year. Sure, absolutely. Well, Alec, do you mind joining us in the nerdery? Go for it. You're, you're a Star Trek nerd. You got to like do a little Vulcan. I can I can do the Vulcan. Yes, there we go. Fantastic. You guys Fantastic. are killing me with all this stuff. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, Cole, like, name, name your favorite, favorite Star Trek character. Is Danny Owen. I honestly don't know anybody. I mean, isn't Captain Kirk a person? There you go. All right. I know that one. just from pop culture references. <laughs> I've literally never seen anything. Uh, uh, okay, so... Do both of you own your house? Are y'all homeowners? Well, the bank owns my house, but yeah, yeah sure. I, I feel that at my Good core, point, yeah. definitely. I, I, well, I think, I think I own two thirds of my house at this point. Congratulations! congratulations. That's yeah, that's a lot. That's quite good. I'm a little bit older than you two. Let's just say that. <laughs> There's a cool new study that I don't know if it's cool or not, but essentially it shows that uh, people believe that buying their home is going to increase their life satisfaction and happiness. Uh, not necessarily the case, not necessarily the case. 
So there, there's a rise up to the event of someone buying their house. And I think we can all emp- emphasize, uh, empathize rather with this, that uh, it lasts for about six months and then there's a big decline back to normal. Uh, you know, I guess people like the, the gutter breaks or like your wa- hot water heater explodes and like the, 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 the fun is gone. The love is gone. I don't know. I feel like there's a difference between life satisfaction and what I would call peace of mind. Right. I feel like a home definitely gives you some peace of mind. And I'll just tell like a little short thing. Back when I used to live in apartments, I hated the fact that, you know, above me, below me, to my left and to my right were thin walls that if I played my music too loud or something like that, they would be like, hey, cut, you know, knock it out. And and when you own a home, or at least if you own something that's not physically connected to somebody else, you actually have the peace of mind that you're going to, hey. I'm just going to play my music as loud as I want and, you know, nobody's going to bother me. Or so, I was just little things like that, I feel like, which are different than life satisfaction, I feel. Yeah. And, and technically, this is happiness, how, how happy they, they, they think they're going to be. And they, they find there's actually two different groups, people that are intrinsically motivated, no real decline after buying the house. People that are extrinsically motivated, like they think that uh, their neighbors are going to appreciate it. You know, culture is going to think that, you know, their new home address is fantastic. Ah, uh, you know, it doesn't really last. So, so, so I think that there's, um, we can go down a big rabbit hole with this. Let's 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 keep our security belts on so it got down too far. Um, I think part of the problem is you're talking about happiness, and I'm not so sure I want to measure that because <laughs> I, I don't think is not so much. Well, no, it's not so much that. It's I mean, even as a psych, even as a, as a I. I I like to say I, I do an, an okay job of imitating a psychologist on TV or, you know, maybe on a Zoom screen. Um, but they, so I don't think people think of, I don't think someone's relationship to their, the place they dwell in is something that you want to measure on a happiness scale. Um, it is a, you know, I think that there are things that you get from that in terms of financial security or or the security of not, of knowing that you can, if you invest either financially or your time and energy, and a lot of it's time and energy about essentially nesting, like, you know, making the place your own, you're not going to have a landlord that's going to come and all of a sudden raise the rent and kick you out. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so it becomes something where people feel comfortable doing that and it enables them to feel psychologically kind of safe in that environment. But that's only the case if they're not stretched so thin financially that they, that they're actually in danger of losing. Right. So, so kind of a moderate, kind of a moderator or mediator. Sorry, I'm I'm not a good enough statistician on this one. <laughs> you know, is it's like you also want to know well, are are people stretched too thin? And you can be stretched too thin either as a renter or as a or as an owner. Um, the other thing yeah, those though, are like debt to income ratios and things like that, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the other thing though is let's let's bring this back into kind of the org behavior world. Um, you know, I, I haven't read this research, but I kind of feel like it's a little bit like the research on kind of pay satisfaction. And, you know, I haven't seen the actual research, but I know because good psychologists have told me that the reason why, like, pay satisfaction is always really low is because, like, when someone gets a promotion and a big raise, they're happy for like five minutes, maybe yeah. five hours or five days. And then what happens is they reset their expectations and they say, okay, well, now I'm worth this. And they immediately go and say, well, wait a minute, who else is being paid at the same level? And am I still Right. You know, and so it's, and so I think it's the same kind of thing. It's like, you know, when somebody goes from being a renter to being a homeowner, there's probably a big kind of, 
you know, emotional lift to say, wow, okay, I'm now in a really different place. But then you immediately run into, well, geez, you know, now I'm responsible for, you know, the pipes leaking. And here's all the problems I didn't realize that the, you know, that the, that, that the seller kind of hid from me. Right. And so, so you very quickly kind of reset your, <laughs> you know, kind of your, your anchor point. There, there's another set of research here that they gathered a group of experts and uh, they asked them essentially, what can people do to make their lives more satisfying? And they rated it both on effectiveness and feasibility. Uh, you want to hear some of the things that uh, are people will be most apt at changing their life satisfaction. So well, one like is the top three. Exactly. He's like uh, connecting with friends, friends and family, prioritize them, join a club, acting nicely, marrying somebody kind of a little, uh, interesting there. Seeking meaning, living up to your values and uh, your religious practices. Be generous. Be active. Get regular exercise. Keep learning. Set goals. Seek challenges. So a little Latham and Locke sort of stuff there. But the least effective strategies are one, get rich. Probably not feasible for a lot of folk. Uh, two is uh, have children. That doesn't raise your happiness. <laughs> Maybe Cole can empathize. I'm not sure. Uh, and interestingly, reduce workload, like limiting your work hours uh, and uh, working part time. Not necessarily effective, but avoiding a long commute that is effective, according to these. Yeah, experts. I could see that, especially yeah. in we we talked about this recently on the E and E E E N session um, that Alec and I had earlier this week. Um, well, the the next nerdery topic, just to to kind of uh, go to a different direction. So, uh, and we'll put this in the show notes, but a new kind of bombshell article came off. So in the last 10 years, one of the bombshell things that came out in the individual performance realm was that actually in most situations, individual performance is not normally distributed. It's actually according to a power law, which was discovered by Herman Aguinness. (laughs) Well, Herman Aguinness and Kyle Bradley from uh, Kansas State University just published a new article on team performance and the nature and antecedents of non-normal distributions. And so they found not only is individual performance not normally distributed, but also team performance is typically not normally distributed. And and this has really two kind of one practical implication and one kind of research methods implication. The research methods implication is most statistical tests, including from a team perspective, thinking about things like multi-level modeling, have the assumption of normality of data, right? Mm-hmm. And so if the data that you're working with is violating those assumptions, Very those statistical true. tests won't be valid and therefore probably some kind of Bayesian methods are, should be applied. But the second is people assume that, you know, that there is an average, there's a median, there's a standard deviation above and beyond when it comes to individuals, but also with teams when really a small number of teams are actually accounting for a substantial portion of the value that's created for organizations. And if you take that frame of reference from kind of a competitive advantage analytics standpoint, Alec, from earlier, that can completely reframe how you think about how value is driven for an organization. I don't know. Do you guys want to comment on that? So, yes. I mean, the lots to say there um there there's no so the funny thing is even the way you framed it so the people would be surprised if something doesn't have a normal distribution it's like why should it be i mean the problem is that people don't realize the problems with assuming normality now having said that there is a 
this, you know, old fashioned technique called regression, you know, ordinarily squares <laughs> that actually doesn't require you have a normal, normal distribution, which is kind sure. of nice. Um, you know, but there, but it is important to understand kind of what a distribution looks like. And, and, and most of and here's another way of putting it, which is that anytime you're doing an analysis and you just kind of indiscriminately say, we're just going to put all the data in and, and see what comes out you are giving greater weight to the things that happen more often. And that might not be what's important. So I, I kind of, I don't like the framing to say, well, some teams are, you know, so much more important than others because it leads to this false sense of, of like, well, okay, so all you have to do is just go find that five or 10% and we make them better and everything's fine. Like, no, those teams have to, are there, they have to work interdependently and often tightly interdependently with other teams as well. And if you only focus on the ones that are supposedly the most high value added, you could be shooting yourself in the foot because oftentimes the, the ability to improve performance lies with the ones that don't get a lot of attention. So this is the really important insight that, um, so John Boudreau, one of my colleagues here at CEO, um, for years has talked a lot about measures like return on improved performance. And I find for this, book which shall remain named, uh, unnamed right now. <laughs> I'm going back into a lot of kind of review, kind of like greatest hits of, of things that we really need to understand and have be part of our kind of our true like an lexicon of what we use in analytics. And this idea of return and improved performance is so important. Um, but what is it and what's a good, good storytelling? Good story That's from it. investing in people, right, Alec? Is that where John publicized it's there that. it's there it's also in um beyond hr there's also an article that he and pete ramstead wrote in fact in fact this one example i was just <laughs> i wanted to make sure we got the right references for the chapter I'm writing for this book and i actually asked john i said you know one of the stories that you've told on this i like i don't even see it in the beyond hr book and i found it in like an article um so i, I can even go find it we can share it with your your audience but there the story is really simple okay which is think about a delivery company like you know fedex ups or dhl and if you say, what are the most important jobs there? Well, one way, now, obviously, of course, leadership is most important. Not true. <laughs> but we think about leaders as being most important because if a leader fails, they can take their entire organization down with them. But in fact, if your organization is designed really well, the leader wouldn't actually be the single point of failure because the leader would just be helping their team to, to, to succeed. And so if they got hit by a bus, the team should actually keep on working, you know, a while, a while without any problem. Um, but if we think about non-leadership role, so like in these delivery companies, a pilot who's flying a plane that's got thousands of packages on it is obviously a big deal if that pilot fails in their job and the plane falls out of the sky and all the packages burn. Of course, you know, people yeah. as well, right? But, you know, but from, the, from a business interruption standpoint, it's as, it's as much, you know, kind of what happens with the packages as much as, you know, a small number of people that might perish. Um, so you look at that and you say, well, so the pilots are really important. And you say, but if a single truck driver, you know, delivery driver fails, like either they crash their truck or they don't show up on time, even if the truck like, you know, crashes and burns, it's a small number of packages you're losing. And so it's really simple to say, well, we got to worry about this pilot. But if you think about it, we have optimized the job of pilot across all industries. Commercial aviation, you know, you know, business, you know, kind of business to business, consumer, all that. Their planes are not really regularly falling out of the sky because we have designed that 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 job of the pilot and the system of, of flying airplanes to be really well designed. So at this point, there is just about zero benefit to trying to improve pilot performance. 
little bits here and there on you know, kind of on time and stuff, but even there, a, a pilot's ability to take off and land on time is not usually not because of their ability, it's because of the no. system. No, I, I, I love that. I love this sentiment because like as the organizations become more networked and, you know, teams become uh, more densely connected, et cetera, we're going to have to take on uh, performance as a distributed sort of function. But like as, as a second point, uh, in grad school, I used to have a hermit crab and I named it Hermit Aguinis and I tweeted it and Hermit, Hermit Aguinis like liked it and retweeted it. Uh, these so. are the things you get on Directionally Correct you get nowhere else, <laughs> just so you know. Well, that's okay. Now that he's taken us down that that joke, you know, path, I will. I'll finish. You know, so so the point about the about the drivers is that, and this this does bring us back to some cool analytics that you can do, even you know, for those who like to just go to the data, which is the variation in performance amongst delivery drivers. First of all, is much greater than amongst pilots, and what that means is that there's a lot more room to performance of the delivery drivers. It's not as sexy as improving the performance of the pilots. But if you're talking about, think of us, you know, lots of us are, we're customers of, you know, FedEx, UPS, DHL companies like that. You know, if you can get your kind of your, you know, your bottom 10% of drivers to perform 20% better, even just bringing them up to the average, a lot more people are going to be happy. Your business will be functional. Oh, yeah. And there's, there's examples like this all over the place. So a lot of times we get kind of captured by the shiny object, which is, you know, and, and Mark Huslet talks about kind of A jobs and B jobs, you know, which is kind of the A jobs, the ones that add the most value. But it's like, there's a question of, again, and, and in fact, I will say Mark happens to be one of the, one of the unnamed co-authors on this book coming up. And we've been talking about, we've actually been having this conversation that, you know, both he and John, you know, Mark Huslet and John Boudreau in their own ways have been kind of making this argument for decades that, you know, you need to actually be looking at where can you improve performance? You know, and not just, you know, the shiny object of what are the things that seem like they're more important. Like uh, LeBron James said, uh, LeBron James said, keep the thing the thing, you know, focus on what matters. Thanks for keeping it real, Scott. <laughs> um, well, if, you want to do, if, you, if you want to do a basketball analogy, you know, hiring one star, even two stars doesn't give you a championship team. It's the rest of the team that actually is, is as important. It's uh, about the Jimmys and the Joes, not the X's and the O's. Wow. Um, we have really ended on a high <laughs> note today. Well, <laughs> Alec, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Scott, any final words before I give Alec the final, uh, the final word? Alex, absolutely wonderful uh, talking to you and meeting you today. Uh, how, how can folks get, get in touch with you if they want to reach out? There are, it's really easy. There's very few people. There's, I think there's one other kind of younger guy, 20, 30 years younger with my name on the English speaking internet. So if you Google me, you'll find me. Okay. Uh, we are at the Center for Effective Organizations, you know, happy to connect, you know, email, LinkedIn, things like that. Um, you know, and I, I appreciate the opportunity for you all to invite me here. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying, I feel like I'm on my own kind of Don Quixote journey, trying to like, you know, tilt at windmills and try to get people to just, you know, be, you know, better in the work that you're doing. And so, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to come and kind of talk about it. Well, with that said, uh, you've been listening to Directionally Correct, uh, People Analytics Podcast with Colin Scott and Dr. Alec Levinson. Thanks so much for joining us, Alec. Thank you, guys. Thank you. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization.